Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. The votes are in, they're being counted as we speak, and the winner? Hang on, let me refresh. Nope, nothing yet. But a few things we do know, and Rich and Chad are going to break those down for us in our Beyond the News segment. Later, Joe Pfeiffer is back on the podcast interviewing Dave Johnson of Foresight Health. So if you're taking an election break with us or listening after the fact, there's plenty to get from today's episode, brought to you by our friends at Trimedics. Now, let's hear from Rich and Chad. Hello, this is Rich Daly, a senior writer and editor for HFMA. Hi, I'm Chad Mulvaney, a policy director for HFMA. Thanks for joining us on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we once again take a quick look at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. I may have heard there was uh, an election uh, yesterday, and although several states remain in question, Democratic nominee Joe Biden is leading in the states called by major news organizations. In Congress, Republicans appear to have held on to their Senate majority while narrowing the Democratic majority in the House of Representatives. If those results hold, and it's a big if, as of today, Wednesday, November 4th, the uh, Republicans and Joe Biden appear to have divided government going into 2021. That could create major obstacles for Biden's more ambitious health care policies. Apparently off the table are Biden's proposals to create a public option government-run health plan in the ACA marketplaces to expand Medicare eligibility to anyone 60 and older, and to expand ACA marketplace subsidies by an estimated $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years. So, Chad, what are the Biden administrative options at this point? Hey, Rich. Yeah, no, and I, you know, I think you've, you've made it abundantly clear that the situation is fluid. But again, I want to stress that, you know, November 4th at 12.20 p.m., this is sort of where we see the world going. And certainly there are a number of states particularly swing states that are counting absentee ballot or, or mail-in ballots right now that could tip the election. But if it, if it plays out like we, or as we see it right now, you know, if you think about what can be done administratively, certainly the current president has done a lot sort of through, through administrative work through CMS and the various agencies. So I could see the Biden administration trying to walk back some of that. So if you think about the, the public charge rule, walking that back, um, in terms of, you know, obviously, first and foremost on on the Democratic policy agenda is expanding health care coverage. So you could imagine funding outreach for the ACA. Um, you could also see dropping or no longer approving Medicaid work requirement waivers. And certainly you could also see walking back the, the flexibility allowed to short term plans. The other thing that's worth noting is to the extent that over the next four years, if this were a Biden administration, over the course of his four years, have a you know unified government, if you will, where the Democrats have the, the House, the Senate and the White House. So moving some of those bigger policy items may not be available to him. If a state were to, say, attempt single payer or their own version of some type of public option, Certainly, that would require waivers from HHS. And so under the Section 1332 provision in the ACA, certainly this administration would probably be very flexible in working with that state to provide them with the regulatory flexibility that they would need to either go to single payer or go to a a, a probably more likely a public option. And so similar to what we've seen this administration do trying to find states that would be willing to block grant Medicaid, you might see 
uh, a Biden administration start to shop for states that might might try to deploy a more aggressive public option or go to even sort of a single payer model. I see. And among uh, bipartisan health policy options uh, that maybe a Biden administration could get uh, Republicans in the Senate to buy into, what would you uh, highlight among those? You know, surprise bills is still out there, and I think both parties are eager to find a solution to it, although they're still going to be stuck with that same fight as to whether you you leave it to an arbitration panel to settle what the amount that's actually paid in the instance of a, an out-of-network bill or a surprise bill versus some type of, of, of market-based benchmark that certainly folks on the right construe as, as, as governmental rate setting. You know, I think price transparency would be equally popular with both parties. So I would imagine that, you know, the push from CMS would continue absent anything in the courts that would, would sort of stop that. Uh, you can imagine, you know, I think both sides and given its performance during the pandemic, there's support for telehealth. So you could see regulations or potentially legislation moving that would relax the geographic site requirements and things like that. And then obviously, you know, one of the challenges that we're currently facing is just with our rural providers and certainly the pandemic has further exacerbated that. So you could anticipate probably support for rural providers. That That's certainly something that cuts across both parties. And then, you know, both parties are supportive of the transition to value. So you may see a Biden administration work with Congress to try to remove some of the legislative barriers potentially to furthering the transition to value. Okay. So if Biden maintains his narrow lead, that would still leave the Trump administration with three months to take additional administrative actions. Uh, anything you could uh, foresee occurring in that time frame? You know, it's so we're getting into the window now where based on the Administrative Procedures Act, anything that's made in rule past a certain point, the the incoming administration gets to sort of review and possibly overturn. And so whatever would happen to be would have to be on deck would would, would need to be released and finalized pretty quickly. So there's really not much, at least sitting at OMB, that the the current administration could certainly try to sort of get in the can, if you will, that wouldn't be subject to an APA issue. Obviously, we have the the Stark final rules sitting out at OMB, although I don't think there's anything in there that would be particularly controversial for an incoming administration, given that both parties support changes to the Stark law. Certainly, there's a proposed rule that's been hanging out there for at least a year now on the international pricing model that would index Part B drugs to some international benchmark. You know, certainly you could imagine that maybe they would get that proposed rule out. But again, I don't know if that would be controversial enough that that a Biden administration would want to walk it back. Well, thank you very much for the uh, Election Day Post 1 insights, Chad. And we will hopefully uh, keep everybody up to speed going forward as these results finalize and we have a better picture uh, going into 2021. Sounds good, Rich. And certainly always enjoy the conversation. My guess is we'll be we'll be talking about this a few more times on the podcast before it's all said and done. Yeah. And of course, our listeners can keep up with the latest uh, health policy developments on our news page, and that's at hfma.org forward slash news. Thanks for listening. This episode was sponsored by Trimedics. As the largest independent technology-enabled clinical asset management company in the United States, Trimedics provides strategic planning and management of clinical assets to drive operational cost savings, free up capital for new strategic initiatives, and deliver improved risk management and cyber protection. Learn how Trimedics is driving results at 
trimedics.com slash results. It's been a few months since HFMA president and CEO Joe Pfeiffer has been on our podcast, but today he's back with a great conversation with Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and a member of HFMA's Healthcare Leadership Council. Today, Dave and Joe are talking about COVID-19 from a market perspective. Enjoy the conversation. Just looking at this whole pandemic environment from a different perspective, you know, the road to value has been a long and complicated one, and boy, we have a long way to go. But the pandemic seems to be changing the way the industry looks at value-based arrangements. At least that's my perception. In an August article, however, you said uh, hospitals' collective response to COVID-19, driven by practical necessity and financial survival, may accelerate the shift to value-based care delivery. And I was wondering what led you to say that or how so? Well, let me first provide a little bit of context and then I'll get to the specific question. I tend to think of healthcare as a very mature industry from a services perspective, but immature from an organizational perspective. So what do I mean by that? I would say roughly 75, 80% of healthcare services, we know what to do. People come in, they present and we know what to do. Uh, So relatively mature from that perspective. In most industries, when they mature, they decentralize to be closer to customers, to offer a lower price points, uh, really recognizing that the services have become commodity-like. Um, so healthcare is certainly doing some of that when you think of urgent care and some of the ambulatory and so on, home care. Uh, but by and large, it's still immature, I think, from an organizational perspective in that the dominant delivery vehicle is a high-cost centralized, think, hospital uh, network. So the struggle has always been, you know, how do you take this immature industry from governance perspective and have it align with its operating reality, which is uh, a mature service business? So COVID comes along and suddenly elective surgeries are shut down and hospitals are bleeding red ink and suddenly they have to reach patients where the patients are not in the hospital. So that opened up the whole telemedicine movement. And, you know, particularly in sort of April and May, uh, we probably saw three to five years of progress in telemedicine in in three weeks as, uh, you know, companies, healthcare systems really trained their doctors quickly, figured out what Zoom was all about and got out. And uh, I think have fundamentally changed some of the supply demand dynamics, particularly for routine care. And the government was supportive in that and it uh, it made payment for a virtual visit equivalent to an in-person visit. It uh, allowed people to cross state lines, practice top of license, all of which were, I think were very practical pro-market regulatory steps Uh, And the more enlightened companies will see that and see that customers like that service and I think will migrate in that way. So that's what I was talking about. So it was the force of not being able to treat patients in hospitals and then having to, you know, necessity as mother invention had to take advantage of these already well-established business practices. And they have. Now, I will say, though, I'm a little bit concerned because video visits have started to decline and I worry that uh, the industry's backsliding a little bit, that uh, they're kind of going back to the old uh, in-person doctor visit when it's not necessary. And I think those that sort of fall victim to that backsliding will lose some market relevance with consumers. Yeah. So to a couple of 
points on that. And what I'm hearing is that the, you know, the pendulum swung way, way, you know, to like 90, 95, almost a hundred percent. And, and, you know, nobody ever really anticipated that that was sustainable at that level. Right. Pendulum has swung back. We don't know what that midpoint is, but what I'm hearing from people is it's not going to go back to the way it was. There will be, whether it's 25, 30, 40, whatever percent um, will continue the other thing I would say is that it's not just care delivery that changed, but interesting to our listeners, it's many of the revenue cycle processes changed as well. So, you know, the whole registration process, you know, the, <laughs> no more waiting rooms. Of course, we have seen pictures of, you know, you could check in, in you know, in your car. And, and um, I myself had services and you wait in your car till they call you in which was great in the summer months, you know, in Michigan, it might be a little chilly in the winter months, but developing more consumer friendly processes uh, went hand in hand in that. So, and you're right, it, it did flip overnight. It was crazy how quickly so many of those things, you know, were put in play. The other thing about the pandemic is that it's, you know, it is acting as a disruptor across, you know, many parts of the industry, many of them based on value. And you alluded to some of those. So going forward, what are some ways, in your opinion, that healthcare organizations should be rethinking their strategies, not just short term to get through the pandemic, but into the future, assuming that much of this is going to stick? I wrote a piece with Scott Latimer from Gensler. He runs their global health practice, really, really thoughtful guy. And Gensler did a lot of research on consumer attitudes and discovered fully a third of people were afraid to go back to hospitals. They thought they were dangerous places. And we've seen as the industry's come back, ambulatory centers, urgent care centers have come back much more quickly than the ED and in-hospital surgeries and so on. And what we sort of concluded from that is that healthcare's historic pattern of having a one-size-fits-all approach to customers, to patients, is actually pretty short-sighted. And the reason hospitals have done that is it's, it's really efficient, right? You just got whatever is the most efficient way. You kind of channel people that way. But it turns out that uh, what a surprise, people are different. And, uh, you know, you've got pre-visit, you got the visit, and then after-visit. And if you've got people that are nervous, that require some handholding, it really makes sense to discover that fact in the pre-visit and then build some services around that to address the concerns. And so what the Gensler piece did, what Scott and I did was we, we looked at prototypes and identified certain types of customers and talked about pre-visit, visit, and post-visit with the idea in the same way that so many retail services do, we prototype patients and try to channel them one way or another so that we're, we're really meeting their needs. And that to me is another example of how you could employ forward-looking crisis management is use this opportunity as a teaching lesson for everybody in the hospital to say, hey, not all patients are the same. We're going to make a real effort to understand where they're coming from, what problems they're trying to address, emotional as well as physical, and then design our care processes to accommodate those. So I think that's potentially a very powerful opportunity for health systems. I don't know how many will take advantage of it, but those that do will position themselves better for a more consumer-oriented marketplace. Interesting. And I, I say this taking some risk because I'm sometimes that could sound like I'm criticizing, you know, my own membership base. <laughs> um, but I say it anyway, because I believe that I, I've been in healthcare a really, really long time. I've heard the term patient centric 
thousands of times. Yeah. But yet, if you look honestly at how we organize ourselves, we say patient-centric, patient-centric, but then we organize around the hospital or the physicians or the health plan or somehow some part of the industry, we organize around the industry rather than the patient. And I do think that the consumerism movement um, is real and yeah. it may not be a three-week transition like it was for telehealth, but I think you're onto something here. If you'd like to hear more about Johnson's thoughts on this topic, check the show notes for two articles he co-authored titled The Future of Hospitals in Post-COVID America. Part one covers the market response and part two covers the policy response. And if you want to hear more from Joe, don't worry. We've got much more planned for him in the podcast in the coming months. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, recommend it to a friend or colleague or leave us a review. You hear this on every podcast, but reviews really do help us move up in the rankings. And if you want to chat with our team, reach out. Our email address is podcast at hfma.org. Bleh.